This is Global Outpouring. I'm Philip Buss. And I'm Sharon Buss. And we are celebrating a very special occasion today. It is our 39th anniversary of our wedding. And we want to invite you today to join us as we tell our love story on Global Outpouring. Well, happy anniversary, darling. Happy anniversary to you, too. <laughs> this is a very special day, and I think it's really exciting that we have made it 39 years. We're just one year away from that big 4-0, and it just, it just is mind-boggling to see how fast time has passed for us and all the wonderful things that God has done in our lives. But we have such a special story and I think people would enjoy hearing it. So I felt like the Lord would just have us to share this today. Philip, why don't you just tell us a little of your backstory? Okay. And one thing I do want to say before I start is God really knows the beginning from the end. Absolutely. And he can orchestrate everything in your life according to Romans eight twenty-eight. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord, to them that are the called according to his purpose. Amen. We've seen that so many times. So many times. Well, I, I grew up in a Christian home, and Grandma was a Nazarene preacher, and and she just uh, she just was a real prayer warrior, and I believe that's what got me through a lot of stuff. But when I was uh, eighteen, I was going to the American Conservatory of Music in Chicago, and I was studying to be a music major. I played clarinet, and I was learning classical guitar. But kind of deep down, I knew this isn't what I really wanted to do with my life because I saw the training that it required to do all that. And I just did not have that to do that. And uh, when Plus, you were living in the shadow of your big brother. Yeah, and that made it difficult. He was a violinist. And, and had graduated from the same school. Just about five years before that. So, oh, here's Scott's brother. You know, it's like... High expectations. Pressure, you know. <laughs> so I dropped out at a half year and because I got serious with a girl, I was 19 years old now, and it was the first girl I ever got serious with. And I thought, you know, I may never have anyone like this again. We got engaged on New Year's Eve in 1973, and we made plans to get married. And so we did. In uh, 1974, we got married. In April. It was in April. And, uh, of course, my parents weren't real happy, and there was... People on both sides maybe not happy. I, I was backslidden at this point. You know, it seems when you get the keys to the car, you can do your own thing, go where you want to go, and maybe mom and dad can't follow you. Of course, they may have a GPS hidden in your car. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't happen in ours. Uh, so anyway, um, this went on, so we were married. And, and in the second year of this marriage, I had a dream. I had a dream I was sitting next to the vice president of our organization. And, which you weren't in yet. Which I was not in yet. But you knew him. And I'm I'm sitting there next to him. I have these headphones on. We're in a, a convention. It's our world convention we have every year. And I'm I'm sitting there. I have headphones on and all this recording equipment in front of me. And there's all these people out there. 
And uh, it, it was the only year that the recording booth was next to the stage because it's usually down at the sound booth. So that was uh, kind of sets it apart. But what year did you have that dream? 1976. That was the year of the first world convention. In a different location. Yeah. Yeah. Totally different. But, I mean, you had that dream before we were even even having an annual convention. Yeah. That's amazing. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. So it shows God really does know. Yeah. He does know it all. So I remember waking up thinking, that's the craziest thing I could believe in my life because this, was, this wasn't a party marriage I was in, but we were not following the Lord and had no intentions to. And so we were both working jobs full time, driving a lot of distance to work on the Illinois tollway system around Chicago. And, and But after three years, things just weren't going good. You could just tell... You know, I had a way of knowing, and I had different friends than she had, and I was involved in bowling a lot and, and performance racing. I had friends in Chicago, and I remember someone saying, it doesn't matter how fast your car is, because somebody out there will have one faster. And Chicago, being what it is, has all kinds of speed shops where you can buy parts for your car and all that, and I had friends involved in drag racing on the street, and others, you only did it at the drag strip. And so that was part of my world. And, and she had her friends in that, too. And there was like this separation that started. But it was about a year later, I noticed, you know, someone put a little note on the car. You know, we swapped cars that night, and this turned out to be her lover. And people were actually telling me, you know, your wife's not being real faithful to you. But I, I refused to believe it. I thought, no, that can't be. But it really was true, and I put an end to it. And it was a tough thing, you know, to do something like that, to go through a divorce. But I know I had to had to do it. So I continued in bowling. And bowling was my main purpose in life at this time, just like I'm living in the bowling alley. And in my performance cars, you know, I had a 66 GTO and had a 73 Challenger and had a pretty high-performance motor in it. And Did, Didn't something happen that you lost your car at one point? Yeah, that was that was about a month after the divorce. It's like being kicked when you were down. It was, yeah, I really was kicked because it was kind of uh, not done in a proper manner, and, and it was a sad thing. I ended up getting real bad credit out of something that wasn't my fault, and it was kind of like insult to injury. And you wound up I, driving a purple dart for a while? So Yeah, so I... <laughs> So my 75 Trans Am got repossessed the night before I was going to the bank when I realized there was a problem because she paid all the bills and I didn't know the car was two months late. And so I was going the next day to drive to the bank downtown Chicago to, to pay, you know, with an arrangement we made. And they took the car that night. And once they take your car, it's out of the hands of the bank and it's in the hand of the repossessors and it goes to auction in two weeks. And so someone bought my car out of the pound because I couldn't get a loan. And I ended up getting this uh, little six-cylinder purple Dodge Dart with a smashed-in left front fender and door. <laughs> Ouch. You know, it was very insult to injury. Humbling. Very humbling. And I even got past my Trans Am once, and, and the guy honked and waved his hand and just sped on. You know, I couldn't mm. catch him if I wanted to, but <laughs> I had a bit of bitterness over that. You know, why did life do this to me, you know? And I quit my job at the steel company. I'd been there five years. I was third from the top on seniority. And, you know, that's setting off pretty good in a, in a place like that because I wanted a whole change of life. Went into construction and continued my bowling career. <laughs> you know, I, I think my, my best average was 183. That's what I had, a 183. And, and at one time, I was bowling four leagues. And that's a lot. That's really a lot. But 
You know, when you're when God's kind of chasing you, you got to do something with your life. You know, you you feel like the hounds of heaven are after you. You know, <laughs> so this continued, and I got a job on the third shift, and I go to the bowling alley, which was about seven minutes away. And I'd shoot the bowling league. Then I'd go into the night shift on my job that started at 11 o'clock at night. And to me, you know, I could make one tank of gas last two weeks. And I wasn't as making as much money as the construction site, but more than my previous job as a glazer in a glass company. And I think this is just the best thing, you know. All is well. All is well, you know. I'm just enjoying life. And, and then we got a notice that this company I'm working for is having their first layoff that they've ever in their history, I think it was. So being seniority, I'm the bottom man on the totem pole, as they would say. And so in two uh, months' time, I was out of a job and on unemployment. And at that time, the, the recession was, was going on, too. This is about 1980. And uh, there isn't a lot of work available, especially in construction, steel or glass or anything like that. So, you know, with my $133 a week on unemployment, living in a single in a two bedroom apartment by myself and just barely able to survive, you know, I was out looking for work. I had enough gas to, to bowl one league and, you know, and, and uh, look for work. And but my bullet average started going downhill. And I couldn't figure out what's wrong, you know, what, what's going on. And, and as a working assistant manager for cash, which means you get paid under the table and the government doesn't know about it, just helping them out at the bowling alley and helping me too. And when it was slow, I'd turn one of the lanes on and I'd just practice, just trying to shoot one pin, spares or this or that, trying to figure what's wrong with my bowling game. And I went down to Dallas and looking for work. I had a brother down there and, and he said, you know, this is God's will. You'll have a job waiting for you here. But I wasn't in Dallas one day and I knew Dallas was not for me. I just I just knew it. You know, even jobs that I worked, they didn't pay as much and the temperature felt like it was about 20 degrees hotter, you know, with the baking <laughs> sun down there. And so I was really discouraged and I'm heading my way back to Chicago and I stopped in Arkansas to see my mom and dad and just to spend a little time there. And uh, I had a book that I had uh, bought some years back and it was about a person by the name of Sigi and she was one of the co-founders of this ministry, Global Outpouring, and she was born when the bombs were falling on Berlin in Germany and she grew up as a teenage in, in the communist youth movement on the wrong side of the Berlin Wall. So East Germany was under the control of Russia. And when you read that story of what it was like to live under communism, it's just like, you know, your life is controlled. The government does everything for you and even tells you what to do eventually. And how to think. And how to think. And your life is not your own and you're spied on. And this was even back in the 19, late 1940s. So anyway, there was a guy at the bowling alley that didn't see anything wrong with communism. So I said, well, I'm going to show him. I gave him this book and I thought, you know, okay, I think I want to get it again. Because so he didn't give it back. I, I didn't get it back. So I come down uh, to the headquarters and uh, with my dad and, and uh, I get the book and I walk in the office and here's this girl named Sharon sitting there, <laughs> you know, and, and so we're chatting for about five minutes you know, until uh, someone found a book for me and all that. And, and I left, and I never thought another thing about her. I watched him go out the door, and I thought, what a nice guy. He's just such a nice guy. <laughs> and then I didn't think about him either. <laughs> so I went But on, I knew his parents. Yeah, so I went on back to Chicago. I actually knew both of his brothers, too. I'd never met him before. And so I headed back to Chicago, still looking for work and all that. And uh, my bowling average continued to drop. 
and I'm on one bowling league. That's about all I could afford to do. And so things are just bad. I was down to a 167 average from a 183. And if you know anything about bowling, that's devastating. <laughs> I'm the anchor man for our team, even though it's in first place. That was a miracle in itself. And and so I um I got home. Uh, it it's about two weeks before Christmas. I get a um, a check in the mail from the from the government with a note saying, "This is your last check." And I thought I had another three months. So here I am. You know, I'm in this apartment by myself. This is my last check. No prospects of any kind of a job. The recession is is real bad in Chicago. And my aunt said, "Well, go on down to see your mom and dad for Christmas, and I'll um I'll help you with the gas." I says, "Okay." And so I drove down, and I'm at their house for a few days, and, and my mom and dad were getting ready to go out the door one evening. And I asked, where are you going? He says, we're going down to the headquarters, you know, of, uh, for global outpouring, and uh, we have some gifts for the staff. Would you like to come? And I sat, and I thought real quick, because the founder, Sister Gwen, Gwen Shaw, um, I avoided her for years. Her brother uh, was my pastor in Chicago, and I had first met her in 1965 or 66, so I was only about uh, 12 years old. The only drug problem I ever had was getting drugged to her meetings, wherever she ministered. <laughs> and she had a real gift of discernment. And, and, you know, a lot of times Lord would speak to her what's going on in someone's life. And so I didn't want to be around her because I thought she might have a prophetic word. And it wasn't what I wanted to hear. And one time she came into our place totally unannounced, except my mom knew she was coming. And I had the headphones on. This is 1972. Just rocking out and, you know, rock and roll on a reel-to-reel -reel, uh, tape recorder. And Sister Gwen walks in and I just wave hi. And she waves hi. She goes into the kitchen. I turn everything off and I just get out the door as fast as I can. And I don't come back till her car is gone. And once she blocked my car in, I got my bike out of the basement. I took off on that. <laughs> <laughs> so I just wanted to avoid it at all possible means. <laughs> so anyway, so I come down and I think, okay, so they're going down the hill. I thought, you know, it's Christmas Eve. It's 1030 at night. There won't be any real holy roller prayer meeting going on. You know, it'll be safe. I'm still backslidden. You know, I'm not following the Lord and really no intention at this time. And and why, because of my upbringing, people praying for me, did I not think, why is God the last person I turn to? But sometimes he just lets you go through stuff, mm -hmm. which is kind of what I had. He had to do some breaking with me. <laughs> so yeah. that happened. And, and so I go down the hill with him. And the person that opens the door and meets us was Sharon. And everybody else was leaving. They were they were having a little get-together over at another place. And, and so Sister Gwen invites, you know, invites us all in. And, and uh, Sharon and I just were talking. We're all together in one of the rooms. And yeah, Sister Gwen had prevailed upon me to stay a little bit longer and sing this new song that she had gotten. And, and then my mom pipes up, well, Philip plays guitar, so... Sister Gwen says, well, Sharon, go get your guitar. And uh, yeah, I was learning classical, still learning it. And uh, I had learned some pieces trying to put a repertoire together, and I wasn't quite all there yet. And so Sister Gwen says, well, Sharon, go get your guitar. So she gets me her steel string guitar. It was Which a, is different. It's like an ov ovation. It has a round back on it, wants to slide away. And, <laughs> you know, and my my nails are grabbing the strings because I'm not used to these thin steel strings. And But I start playing this piece and she says, oh, that's so beautiful. What's it called? I go, <clears throat> it's called Romance. I found out <laughs> later it was called Romanza or Spanish ballad. But So we chatted for 
you know, a while longer, and Sister Gwen, my but, mom, but went into the, the kitchen. There was a phone call. There was a phone call in the middle of that. Oh, you tell that. So uh, the phone rang after after he played Romanza, and and I said, what do you call that? And And so I ran up and answered the phone. And it was my friend with whom I had been going out the door to begin with. And she said, Sharon, what are you doing? What's taking you so long to get here? And I said, well, Phil's playing the guitar for us. And she said, uh-oh, dun, 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 I said, Myrna, come on. She said, oh, yeah, this is it. This is the one. He's the one. I know it. And I just thought, right. Uh, you know, it, it didn't click with me until later <laughs> that she was right. <laughs> so then we were talking, and, and uh, we talked. And we were talking, and, and since Sharon was going to be a music major, you know, that was that, my original. That plan. was her original plan, and and so she loved classical music, and she had classical guitar albums, and and so we're talking guitar and all that. And uh, so after a little while, we head up the hill. My mom and I, we we head up the hill. And then Sister Gwen and I sat in the living room for a long time. And she told me all about Philip. All lots and lots of details about this young boy that had been avoiding her. (laughs) (laughs) And then the phone rang again. And by this time, it's almost midnight. And it turned out that the phone call was for Sister Gwen. And it it was Philip's mother. And so she took it up in her bedroom and came back to the top of the stairs and said, "Uh, Dorothy wants to know if any of the girls would like to come up to have Christmas dinner with their family. Maybe Sharon would like to come. (laughs) I didn't get it. I was very naive. And and so I, I thought, well, now Dorothy has left her gloves behind. I could take her her gloves. And I could take those albums that Philip and I were talking about, the hymns on the classical guitar. And I thought, well, I could take those up and we could listen to those. Yeah, yeah, I'll go. And so the next morning, they got me all prettied up. One of the girls fixed my hair, mm. and and I wore my new Christmas gift that somebody had given me, a pretty blue sweater. And, and so I got all prettied up and, and drove up the hill to Dorothy and Estel's house, Philip's parents. And we're sitting there having dinner, and I suddenly got very uncomfortable because I realized, uh, I'm at a family affair here. Here's mom and dad. And here's Grandma, and here's Philip's brother, Gary, and his wife, Christine, and their two children, and Philip and me. And uh, this is a family thing. What am I doing here? And uh, so we managed to get through dinner. And then after dinner, it was time to open presents. And here, lo and behold, there were Christmas presents from me with the rest of the family Christmas presents. And I'm thinking, wow, this family moves fast. (laughs) This is amazing. These are express buses. (laughs) And then, then it was time to, uh, to sing around the piano. This is a very musical family that I married into. And his mother just happened to have quartet music up. And Philip's brother, Gary, is a bass and Philip is a tenor. Christine is a soprano and I'm an alto. And so we we were singing these quartets together, and we sounded really good. I mean, it was it was fun. We were having lots of fun. And then all of a sudden, Christine stops, and she says, Hey, we sound good. We should be a group. What should we call ourselves? 
And in my heart, I began to say, Christine, if you'll just be quiet for a little while, maybe we can call ourselves the buses. Because it was beginning to dawn on me that something was going on. (laughs) And so, you know, the next thing we knew, Philip's mother received a call from her sister that that had helped him come. and, And he'd been working for them a little bit as well. And she said, oh, you don't have to come back to work. Why don't you just stay a little longer? <laughs> and so he stayed a little longer. And uh, we went out for a picnic on New Year's Day. It was quite chilly, but we had a nice time visiting. We just talked and we talked and we talked and we talked. And we were getting to know one another. And and uh, we, we liked what was going on. And then what happened? So I headed back to Chicago. And my lease was, uh, so we're in January now. My lease is up at the end of the month. And I wrapped my whole life up in Chicago in one month's time. You know, and everything I had to do, put a motor in one car, sell the performance car, paint the apartment, you know, all the things that you have to do. And I started on a what I thought would be a 21-day uh, diluted fruit juice and water fast. And I knew I just had to do this. I knew, I knew it was for God's anointing in my life. But I had a hard time explaining it to people because I didn't know everything to tell them about fasting. I knew I just had to do it. And what happened on the third day of your fast? Third day of my fast, I realized... I need to get saved. Wow. You know, <laughs> so right there in my living room, I just knelt down and I just say, Lord, forgive me of all my sins, all my nonsense, you know, and, and it was just astounding and amazing. And and so I went through this fast, wrapped my whole life up in Chicago, leaving a lot of details out for time's sake. So I, I drove down with my most prized possession at the time, which was my stereo. <laughs> and you know, it's a 12 hour drive, Chicago to Arkansas rented a truck down down here in in Arkansas and my dad came up with me and and uh next day we've got some friends from the church and loaded all my stuff and moved down and I had about four days left on my fast and I thought, you know, you're supposed to spend as much time as possible with God, especially when you're fasting. And I feel I just didn't have that uh, in light of everything going on. And I felt I had to fast another week, make it twenty eight days. And I talked to some folks about it. And they says, no, nah, 21 days is enough. You know, that's a profit length fast. But I felt to do it. And I asked Sharon and she said, well, just do what God tells you to do. So I went this extra one week, not knowing why. And then two weeks later, we went down to a regional convention we had. It was down in a little town called Douglas, Georgia. It was a storefront type church there. Our, um, just, a regional just, convention. Yeah, it was a regional convention. In the afternoon meeting, that's why I officially joined the ministry. I said my dedication prayer. And in the night meeting, I got filled with the Holy Ghost. That had never happened before. And I was just so under the power of God. Yeah, you I were. just lay there speaking in tongues. And, and I went to get up, you know, and that was tough. But I got up. I staggered over to Sharon. I mean, I staggered over to her and just said, how'd you like to get engaged? Which I never <laughs> would have done in my right mind. And And in my cheekiness, I said... Engaged for what? And and then he said... <laughs> to get married. Yes. And <laughs> but we'd been on one date. We'd know, only we'd... been on one date together. Well, I guess you could say two if you count that... that Valentine's uh, Day we went yeah. out for dinner. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and our, our picnic on New Year's Day. And so I knew that I could say yes. But I, you know, I prolonged the moment. <laughs> <laughs> but the reason why I knew I could say yes was that my backstory here is that I don't know if it was a year, two years earlier, I was I was becoming aware that it was time for Mr. Wright to show up. And you're 23, I, at 22. That, yeah, at that point, I was 23, I think. 
I guess 22. I had my birthday then before we got married. But I just knew that Mr. Wright was coming along somewhere, sometime. And I'm so I'm looking. I'm looking at every possibility that there is in the field. You know, I'm just looking. Not doing anything, just looking. Is it this one? Is it that one? And at that time, I was already the, the tour coordinator for Sister Gwen for, for our various kinds of tours, uh, mostly to Israel. And that particular year, there were four eligible bachelors. And there was one in particular that I f- sort of took a fancy to. And I thought, is this the one? You know, he was tall and blonde and blue-eyed and broad-shouldered and looked kind of like John Boy Walton. And I just thought, this would be nice. I like this. Uh, but then there was another gal on our staff that also was tall and blonde and blue-eyed. And I don't remember if she actually said something or if it was just her vibes, you know, that, that, that it came across somehow. She's, it was like, hands off, he's mine. And so I backed up and I said to the Lord, if this is the one for me, let him fast 21 days to become an end-time servant and an extra seven for me. And so when Philip decided that he was hearing from God that he needed to fast an extra week, I thought, uh, oh, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, th- this is the one. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, I had been getting several signals. And I, I'll, I'll have to say another thing about how God put us together. I had been engaged previously when I was in language school. And, you know, I fell, I always fell for musicians. And I fell for this musician, and I, you know, I thought he he proposed to me, and I said yes because he said that that he had this list that he wanted in a girl. She had to be tall with long hair and could sing, and and I was tall and had long hair and could sing, so it must be me, right? <laughs> Naive thing that I was, but that engagement lasted about two weeks, and I realized it wasn't God. All the people around me, when they heard that I had gotten engaged to this person, said, "You what?" And it was like they were incredulous that this could possibly be. But this time, when Philip came along, everybody around me that I trusted in the Spirit was giving me a thumbs up. Mm-hmm. Everybody was saying, yes, yes, this is good. This is from God. And so I had all of the support of the people around me that I had been receiving good teaching from. I'd been being mentored by them. And God just gave me an assurance and and this extra kiss from the Lord of him fasting that extra seven days was just so remarkable to me how, how God had done this. And so I was I was really grateful and I could say yes. And the other sweet thing is that Philip and I both grew up under the same kind of teaching basically. Now, he came up with Nazarene background and then into the Pentecostal church, which I didn't get that far until I was more in my teens um, before I got introduced to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's another story for another time. But we, we basically had the same kind of a background where we could see eye to eye on so many things. There's so many things that you can disagree on in a marriage that the more things you can already agree on before you even get married, you know, because your backgrounds are similar, the the less things there'll be to disagree about. And mm-hmm. I've just appreciated that as we have spent these years together, that there were so many things that we didn't have to have, have to work through. Yeah. We didn't have to work through because we already saw eye to eye. Yeah. 
So I, I appreciate the 39 years that we've had together and appreciate you, Philip, and, and I honor you. Oh. Uh, you know, there's when we have had disagreements, uh, it's not like we fight. Uh, thank God we don't. We're just not wired to fight, fight. But, you know, when we have had disagreements, most of the time he's right. So it's it's <laughs> easy for me to back down. And, and once in a while I'm right and, and he sees it or whatever, you know, but we we did make up our minds early in our marriage not to let the sun go down on our wrath. Yeah. And that, that has stood us in good stead for 39 years. Yes. I want to finish one thing. Um, oh, yes. That's on, important. So we, we set the date and we're getting married. It was July 17th. It was just... Uh, 1981. 1981, just after our world convention that we had in St. Louis. And, but for convention, I was assigned to help Colonel Jim. So, and he works in the recording department. So here I am sitting next to Colonel Jim. I got headphones on, and uh, here's all this recording and equipment in front of me. We're next to a stage with all these people out there, and that dream came back to me. Because even after my divorce, I went through three different jobs, and God really does know the beginning from the end. Yes, he does. That was, And someone even told me about three years later, I see you as a pillar in this ministry. I think, who am I? I'm the low man on the totem pole. <laughs> but today I'm the vice president. Yeah. yeah. God knows the end from the beginning. And so here we are after 39 years. We thought you'd enjoy our story today. So that's, that's why we wanted to celebrate it by celebrate our 39th anniversary by sharing this story with you. God bless you because we are still pressing in and contending in prayer for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on all flesh. And we've been equipping for Amen. all these years. <laughs> and so we're also engaging in every place that we can where the Lord is moving. And we bless you in the name of Jesus as you contend with us for this mighty outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Amen. Amen. If you enjoyed today's episode, Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Your review helps the show reach more people and spread the good news of God's global outpouring. Check out our website at globaloutpouring.org to find out more information, connect with us, get a link to our Facebook page and our YouTube channel. You can browse our online bookstore for amazing anointed material. Until next time, this is Sharon Buss. And I'm Philip Buss. God bless you with his overwhelming, loving presence.